The sermon text today is Judges 7. I'll be reading verse 1 through 21. Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Let Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, This one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Every one who laps the water with his tongue, as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was three hundred men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred men who lapped, I will save you, and give the Midianites into your hand. And let the, all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go, go down to the camp with Pira, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number, as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian, and came to the tent, and struck it so that it fell, and turned it upside down, so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the three hundred men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and emptied jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of the camp and shout, For the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, when they had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. There was a, um, <clears throat> above our weight room in high school, there was a sign that hung, and it was, um, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. It was supposed to kind of enthuse you to be strong, to be mighty, to get ready to go in there and lift a lot of weights and get strong. 
We have the same kind of expressions today, just do it or no fear. You know, our culture does promote in us this, this need to be strong, to be mighty, to not be weak, to not be vulnerable. I mean, to be weak either personally or relationally or financially, um, it, it's, it, it's kind of looked down upon to be vulnerable, to be weak. And, and yet we have a passage, well, even in Winnie the Pooh, if I can reference Winnie the Pooh. You have Kanga and Rue. Kanga, the mother, uh, speaks with Rue, the child. And what's Kanga always telling Rue? You have to take your medicine to be strong. Uh, so, so even in a book like that, strength is encouraged. We're admonished to be strong. Don't cry. Just keep pushing forward. Fight. And yet we have a text here that seems to highlight the glory of weakness. Now, this shouldn't absolutely surprise us. There are other paradoxes in Scripture. If you want to be great, then be a servant. If you want to, be, if you want to save your life, then you have to lose it here. If you want to be strong, you've got to be weak. I, I mean, if you will, the Bible kind of brings about weakness as a new strength. That's what we see in Gideon. You know, last week we saw the kindness of God that he listens to the cries of his people, and he responds to them by sending Gideon. Remember, he calls Gideon, and then he, he um, confirms with Gideon who he is, and then he commissions Gideon to bring deliverance. This is the deliverance that we've just read, that we've just heard. Now, remember, the book of Judges is, is giving us lessons on the character and the conduct of God with his people. The book of Judges isn't so much asking us to kind of look at the judges and say, do this because they did this, or don't do this because they did this. It's really highlighting the greatness of God and how God moves among his people. And what we're going to see here is that God is gracious to us, but his grace comes in unique ways. First, he weakens us. We're going to see that God weakens us from the love of this world the trust of the things of this world. He weakens our grip on those things that we hope in and long for and trust in. But he weakens us only to strengthen us. We're going to see this in 9 to 15, that he'll strengthen us so that our faith is planted in him and not in the things that he's given to us. And then we're going to see in the last section, that great battle scene, we're going to see that he saves us. And he saves us to bring us to joy, contentment, and peace. It's kind, of a, it's kind of a picture of the Christian life, really. God will weaken us, then he strengthens us as we falter and fail. He strengthens us to lead us to obedience and success. So look with me at how he weakens us. Now, the story kind of picks up from where we left off last week in 6. If you remember, Gideon called from the tribe of Manasseh and, and Asher and Zebulun and Naphtali, and he called these warriors to come fight Gideon, 32,000 of them. And they meet at this camp or this spring of Herod. Uh, the Hebrew word for Herod simply means trembling. And you're going to see why in a minute that it's called trembling because as all those troops gathered at that spring, they could look north in the valley and east. And they saw the Midianite forces. Now in chapter 8, verse 10, they numbered 135 135,000. And he says that the camels were without number. Now, camels were like an ancient form of the cavalry. I mean, they would be destructive to ground troops 
in an open plain. And so they're looking at 135,000 and countless camels. <clears throat> and they're thinking, we don't have a chance. This isn't unwinnable. This is going to be a, a slaughter fest. But then what happens next is kind of laughable, really. Look at two to three with me. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give to the Midianites into their hand. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. Now you could think that someone might come up and say, They are too many for us. But God looks at Israel and says, No, you have too many. And so he tells Gideon to reduce his, his troop size. Now he says that anybody that's scared or anybody that's trembling, you can go home now. And can't you imagine the 22,000 that slinked out? I mean, do you think Gideon wanted to go with them? I mean, he'd probably kind of saddle up and hide himself in there. It's incredible. Now, in, in one level, there's a little bit of military sense here. You don't want to go into battle with a bunch of troops that will that will kind of break down and break away in the heat of the battle. That would crush morale. So there's a little bit of military sense there, but to knock off two-thirds of the troops. But there's still too many for God's taste. Look with me at verse 4. He says, And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. So he wants to distinguish them further. This time he does it by the way they drink water. Now, we don't fully understand this. There were some that were kneelers. Let's just call them the kneelers. They kneel down to drink water. They were the lappers. They were the ones, presumably, that would be standing up, maybe lapping water up to their mouth with their hands. <clears throat> but that's a distinguishing mark of who to keep. Now, a lot of scholars have tried to interpret this and say, well, it's, uh, he chose the lappers, those who were standing to lap it up, because they were more militarily on point. They're standing, they're not kneeling, they're ready for a sudden attack. But it doesn't say that. There's nothing virtuous in the text over the lapper versus the kneeler. The only difference between them is that the lappers were a very small number, 300. I'd propose to you that what God is doing is he's not trying to get the best force, but the smallest force. Think about the odds for a minute. It was four Midianites to one, then it was 13.5 to one, then it was 450 to one. Gideon has 300 men and they have 135,000 men. Now what, what's going on here? Well, I think first God is reminding us that he does things in ways that are totally ironic. You, you'd never think of it. You'd never do it this way. You could never come up with this. If I gave you 50 lifetimes, you wouldn't think to do things the way that God does. And he does this so that nobody will say, my hand has saved me. Nobody will say that. You think about biblical history. Think about Moses leading the people of Israel. What happens to the Egyptian army? Consumed by the waters of the Red Sea. What about, what about Joshua going around Jericho? shouting at walls, and all the walls come down, destroying the city by shouting. Or Barak, you know, taking on a mechanized army with some rakes and shovels and hoes. Or here, Gideon, 300 men versus 135. God does things in ways that we say, my hand did not save me. Or think about church history. John Bunyan, 
John Bunyan wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, at one point probably the second most read book in Western culture. He was a tinker. That means he went from village to village fixing ladies' pots and pans. No formal education. What about William Carey, the father of missions? He was a cobbler. He fixed shoes, went to India, learned multiple languages. He's the father of modern missions. God loves to do things where we would say, to God be the glory. He does these things over and over because he knows our tendency is to take credit for things that his gifts have enabled us to do. And consider for a minute. Think about how quick you are to want to receive credit for something you've done. Think about it. If someone's telling a story and you've played a part in that and you get omitted from the story, you want to bring the story back up. You want to make sure that you get your fair shake. You want to get a shout out. I mean, we all have that tendency that we want to receive the glory, that we want to be we want to hear what we've done well, how our gifts have helped someone. We have this desire. You know, John Adams, our second president, uh, at one point read, uh, wrote a series of articles for this Gazette of the U.S. in 1790. And here's something he noted about human nature. He said, there is a natural passion in humans for distinction. In men or women, whether they be young or old, rich or poor, high or low, wise or foolish, ignorant or learned, every individual is seen to be strongly actuated by a desire to be seen, to be heard, to be talked of, to be approved, to be respected. To be wholly overlooked and to know it is intolerable. We love this. And yet God does things in a way that we say, my hand did not save me. This is really the beginning of the Christian life. If you're here and you're not a Christian, this is where it starts. It starts with this idea that I cannot do what only God can do. I am not good enough. I'm not able enough. I am not. I, I don't have the capacity to bring myself to a position where God will look at me and he would say, well done. You'll never be there. It's the beginning. What God is doing here in weakening us is reminding us that he is the one who is all-glorious and who's doing the work. And that's what he's showing Gideon by weakening him. But he's doing something else. He's weakening Gideon to revive Gideon. He's actually weakening Gideon to use him for his own kingdom. In other words, God is weakening him, not because he's trying to hurt him, but because he's trying to get Gideon to let go of the human metrics and measurements that we, we look at troop size and number of men and, and size of the battlefield and all that, or education or financial wealth. We look at all these human measurements and God just seems unconcerned about those things when he's thinking about getting his work done. God's trying to weaken us to lose. He brings us to situations where we are frankly overwhelmed with the odds against us. You know how that feels. Maybe it's the sense of weakening that you feel as you're getting older and you're losing capacities and you're losing abilities. Or maybe you're facing a, a financial downturn where it is just you don't know how you're going to get out of this jam. Or your marriage is toxic and you just don't see any way out. He's weakening you for purposes of reviving you and of strengthening you. It could be parenting. It could be a health crisis where it's just, I've got no answers. 
He weakens us. He brings us into these situations so that we would turn and trust Him. Letting go of the things that we longed for and we found identity in, and the things that we hoped in, the things that we banked upon, we trusted in these things to help us, that our grip kind of loosens on that, and we find God to be a sure foundation. That's His point in weakening Him right now. He wants to whittle the troops all the way down. So you've got nothing but me, Gideon. You've got nothing but me. And then many of you, you've been in the faith a long time. You understand. You've been at points of acute loneliness and you've found the presence of God to strengthen you. you found health crisis to be overwhelming, but then God comes along and helps you and upholds you. You've felt this way. This is what Paul's talking about, I think, in 2 Corinthians. When he writes these words, he says, But Jesus said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. We know that Paul had some thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it is. Maybe it was a physical ailment. But it weakened him to a point where he found that in his weakness, he can now find the power of God to be made perfect in his life. Can you look with me at your weakness as a means and a grace of God to bring you to him? So whatever weakness you're facing right now, whether it's job situation, marriage, can you look at that and say, thank you, Father, for weakening me and weakening my grip on the props of this world so that I can trust in you. God, in your weakness, may be doing a remarkable work of revealing himself to you in ways that will lead to great joy and success and happiness. He weakens us. In fact, here's the warning to us. If we're healthy, strong, gifted, we're well-measured, we have financial security. That's not a sin, but be warned that it creates in us a sense of, look at what my hand has done for me. Look at my gifts, look at my, I'm a hard worker, I'm very gifted. I, I put my hand to the plow. Let it be, it was a warning to the church of Laodicea that Jesus gave. Interesting, the warning is, for you say I'm rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. He's speaking to the church here, a, a church that had long since kind of moved from being weak to now being strong. We, we've, look what our hands have made. You know, Richard Sibbs wrote, wrote this book, um, The Bruised Reed, and uh, in it he talks about how God bruises us. He weakens us. Like he said these words in the first chapter, he says, after conversion, we need bruising so that the reeds, that's us, the reeds may know themselves to be reeds and not oaks. Even reeds need bruising by reason of the remainder of pride in our nature. And to let us see that we live by mercy, this is the grace of God to weaken us. We're not oaks, we're reeds. We're reeds. And this is the grace of God that he's doing for Gideon so that he, he doesn't say, look at what my hand has done for me. So that's the first thing we see, this weakening work of God in the life of his people. Ask him, what are you doing in me? Appeal to God for grace. Because notice what he does next. He then moves to strengthen us. He moves to take the weakened sinner and strengthen him look with me at verse 9 to 11 
He says that same night, so after the troop reduction has gone through two swings, he's got 300 men. Look at what God does for his servant. That same night, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I've given it into your hand. But if you're afraid, so he has the word of God now given to him. But if you're afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, you shall hear what they say. And afterward, your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. So try to imagine a massive valley filled with 135,000. It's a war machine down there. And he and his servant are going to go down to the edge of the camp. Now, God is being merciful to him right now. God is doing a work that will strengthen Gideon so that he can walk by faith. This is God's doing. Gideon is just for us an instrument of example to see this is what God does with his people. So look what happens in verse 13 to 15. When Gideon came, as when they got to the line of the enemy, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade, a fellow soldier, and he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled down into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, Well, this is none other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. The kindness of God here. I mean, he sends Gideon down to be at the right place at the right time to hear these two soldiers talking about a dream that God placed in their head and the interpretation that he placed in the head of another. Now, this is fantastical. I, I mean, you can't make this stuff up. I mean, God moves both in moving his enemy, the enemies of his people. He uses them to strengthen Gideon. And Gideon worships. He worships God. God, thank you for giving me what I need to do. It's like what Augustine said. Command what you will and give what you command. That's what God does. I mean, when you read this story of him worshiping, can't you see him there on the line with the Midianite army behind him, and he's worshiping God in the valley of the shadow of death, really. In the presence of his enemies, God has set a table for him, a table where his cup is overflowing. Let this story change our views of God. I mean, if we tend to think of God either as that distant father, that distant grandfather that really doesn't know or really interested in what we're doing, or maybe you think about God as some cruel taskmaster that knows everything you're doing and is ready to punish you for it, can you look with me at this kind of God who's patient and kind, kind of reassuring? He's, he's promoting in Gideon faith. God is adding sticks to the fire of his faith that he could walk in obedience. This is God's doing. Gideon's obedience is cultivated by the very mercy of God. He knows our frame. God knows how weak we are. He knows the help we need. Do you realize that when you're faltering in faith, God is not up there like this, looking down his nose at you as if you're failing. God comes to us. This is why Sunday... I'm trying to adjust your mind so when you falter in faith, you're going to look to God for strength. You're not going to look away from God because you're in fear of what he's thinking about you. But you're going to look to him for strength. That's what he did with Gideon. If you're afraid, that's fine. Take your servant with you. 
You see the patience and the mercy of God, don't you? You, you see a kindness of God that he doesn't just save us, but he perseveres us in faith. And he does this through many ways. He does this through the, his, the enemies of God's people are instruments in God's hands to help God's people. I mean, we're threatened by all this opposing forces or cultural influences. God could just as easily use them as use me. God's not limited. He doesn't work according to human measurements, remember? He can use enemies. He can use friends. He can use his own word to strengthen you. His own word. I think I shared years ago when Carol and I were looking to go overseas, we weren't looking to put out a fleece as to what to do. We thought we knew what to do, to sell everything and go overseas with two kids under two. But obviously that was fairly daunting for us at the time. It still seems daunting to me now. And so we prayed, God, give us wisdom and grace. What do we do? How do we do it? We don't think we have the power, the faith. We're just weak. We don't know what to do. So before teaching a Bible study at the U.S. Naval Academy one morning, I've just got some time. I opened the scriptures, and I just opened Mark chapter 12. Excuse me, Mark chapter 10. He says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my name for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children, and in the age to come, eternal life. That strengthened me. That was like God saying, you can do it. it it's God meeting me where I was in my weakness. Find out later that Carol read the same verse that same night. So God does it. He takes his people. We falter in faith. But then he comes and he reassures us. He strengthens us, both through his word by the Spirit, but through one another. Do you realize the important role that you play in one another's lives to be a word of God to a brother or sister? To strengthen them, to encourage them. Encourage them in the faith. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, of course, you know, he established an underground church during the height of Nazism in Germany in the mid-40s in his book Life Together and quoted this probably a hundred times, but, but it says this in page 22, but God has put <clears throat> this word into the mouth of men in order that it may be communicated to other men. Of course, we would say women. When one person is struck by the word, he speaks it to others. God has willed that we should seek and find his living word in the witness of a brother, in the mouth of a man or a woman. Therefore, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him, he needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by himself, he cannot help himself. He needs his brother as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. He needs his brother and sister solely because of Christ. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of the brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's is sure. How have you been encouraged by those in your life who've come alongside when you've been weak and faltering and struggling and they've come to bring a word of grace to you or maybe a word of admonishment? When have you done that last with another? When was the last time that you came alongside to give a word of grace to another? Uh, let it not be more than 30 days. Let it not be more than six months. 
Speak to it this week. Encourage one another. This is how God is reassuring us. Yes, he can, he can write in the sky if he chooses to. But God uses a myriad of ways to encourage and reassure his people to walk by faith. Be part of that process. Look to encourage people with the word. But, so let it change your view of God when you see him meet Gideon in his weakness to strengthen him. But let it remind you of who we actually are. I think sometimes we look at the Christian, the mature Christian at least, is the missionary or the one that knows all the Bible answers or never wavers in faith. That's not what we see here. Gideon is being held up as a servant of God, and he's weak, he's fallible, he's faltering. He's tripping all over the place. As Ray prayed, he is not this example of someone that you just want to immediately take off after. He's faltering in faith. And yet, God reassures him. We are weak. We are weak. That's not a sin to be weak. It's not a sin at all. This is why we need the church. This is why you come every Sunday. I mean, it should be why you come every Sunday. I, I, I'm developing my top 10 list of why people don't come to church. You know, there's a, a third of people who worship before COVID have not returned. Thankfully, that's not our case. But I'm beginning to develop a, a top 10 list as to why people don't come to church, the silly reasons that they make up. And yet when you come to church week after week, you, in your weakness, are to be strengthened. You're hearing the gospel. You're being reminded of God's unfathomable mercy. You're being convicted over those things that you have become accustomed to during the week living in Egypt. You're being helped. You're being bent back to whatever you were bent away from, from the word, the influences. Maybe you've struggled in sin or you've slipped back into into some sort of anger, pornography, and yet you're going to hear a word that's going to bend you back so that week after week after week, this is how God changes a people. Through reassuring them over and over, chiding them, convicting them, helping them, being in relationship with other people. This is what care groups are for. This is what your discipleship relationships, your conversations out there. These are all means of grace to carry you from day to day so that when you finish, you'll finish strong. You'll finish well. This is the value, hopefully, for you of the church. So do you see God takes Gideon, he weakens him in faith, and then he begins to strengthen him, strengthens him through even the words of the enemy, but also through his own word. Be strengthened by God's word. You know, Gideon, in some respects, drew greater strength of what his enemy said than what God said. In fact, the enemy had to confirm what God had just said. We don't need that. We have the word of God now. And then the third thing you see is the weakening leads to God strengthening him, and then the strengthening <clears throat> leads to his walking in obedience. There's an interesting principle here. You know, when God calls you to obey, and you begin to try, and you begin to falter, right? You fail in faith, or you struggle, or you slip back into sin. And then God comes along, and he reassures you, <clears throat> and he, can, he, he reminds you of his grace and his mercy and his love for you. And, 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 then, and then he reassures you enough to, that you try again, and then you succeed, or you walk by faith, and you enjoy the fruit of that. And then, and then the next time you begin to be, you're called out to be obedient to God in some way, you struggle, you don't want to be obedient, you want to pursue your own pleasures, 
you feel that conviction, you falter, then he comes along and he reassures you through the word of a friend or a preaching or a song. And, and, then, and then you pick back up and you begin to be obedient and you enjoy the fruit. That's what God's doing. He's calling us to risk living bold lives for Christ. But he's assuring us that he will continue to strengthen us in faith. Look what happens. Look at the fruit of his faith. Look with me at verses um, 16 to 20. He divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirt of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp and beginning in the middle watch, when they had just set the watch, they blew the trumpets, smashed the jars that were in their hands, and the three companies blew the trumpets, broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches, in the right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Now, this is just an amazing story. I mean, these aren't your crack troops, right? Troops. Th these are not your SEAL team. These aren't your rangers. These aren't your special forces. It's 300 guys with a jar, a torch, and a trumpet. And they're just walking. He, Gideon breaks them up into three companies, right? Spreads them around Gideon. Uh, spreads, spreads them around the Midianite camp, which you can't really because it's too big of a camp. But they're there in the hills. Can you imagine what they were thinking? I mean, I got a torch, I got a horn, and I've got a clay jar. He says, yeah, go to positions and do what I do when you see me do it. Now, <clears throat> the idea was, and Gideon is trying to use some strategy here with the limited resources that he has, he thinks, well, spread them out. It creates bigger numbers. It's like the U.S. military. They, had, they made fake airplanes in the uh, England airfields during World War II to kind of create that sense that we got more than we, than we do. That's what he's doing here. And he's going to have them smash the jars, which in the night, you know how sound travels, that's going to sound like clashing swords, and then lights are going to appear in the hills. And normally, in a battle, one troop or one, one company of men had one torch. So you have 300 torches that are spread in the hills, and then shout. And as you shout, your voice will echo through the valley. So that's what they do. <clears throat> Doesn't seem like a D-Day planned invasion to me, but that's what they do. And guess what happens? Look with me at 21 to 23. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set, this is important, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army, and the army fled. This is, this is incredible. I, I mean, did you notice they carried the torch in their left hand and the trumpet in their right hand? Did anybody bring a sword? Did anybody bring a sword? Give me a pocket knife. Give me a, anything. Nothing. They didn't have a sword. Now, you go into battle. I mean, that's kind of equipment number one. They didn't bring anything. Can you imagine? And they bust the jars, and, they, and the, the lights appear for the Lord and for Gideon. And then God turns them against. They, it says, you, you read, every man stood in his place. They didn't even go after them. They didn't kill anybody. God moved in their weakness to bring about a colossal victory. 
I, I mean, every man stood in his place. They just watched. And God did the work. Now, as you read the rest of the chapter, you're going to find that Gideon calls the reservists, those who were sent to the tent, those 9,700, and perhaps even the 22,000. And then they chased the rest of the army that did not kill itself, and they slaughtered them all the way to the Jordan. Interesting, at the very end, two Midianite princes who were over this whole horde, they were slaughtered. Their names were Oreb and Ze'eb, and they were killed at the winepress on the rock. That's where it all started, right? Gideon was in the winepress, and he put the sacrifice on the rock, and God consumed it. God completes what he starts. That's how the thing ends. So when you look at this story, there's so much about God. God's salvation is his salvation, but he does use human instruments. You look at Gideon. He did plan. He did strategize. It seems hokey to perhaps you and me, but he used what he had to give unto God, and God used it. I mean, doesn't it remind you of the little boy with a few fish and a few loaves feeding 10,000 people? God does use us. Your choices, your life, your obedience, the way you declare Christ to others, the way you serve one another, it matters. God uses that as a means to strengthen one another. Do not write yourself off. I'm not a good teacher. You know, I, I, don't write yourself off because you kind of give yourself lower shelf giftings. He uses clay pots, bugles, and torches to achieve incredible victories that we're still talking about thousands of years later. It matters. You know, the, the success wasn't dependent upon Gideon, but it did go through him. It did go through him. Uh, be one of those that it goes through you. God's work among his own people and those who are not yet his people but will become his people, let it go through you. And you can't ever more, you can't anymore say, I don't have any gifts, I don't know enough, I'm not skilled enough, I haven't been in the faith long enough, so just cast those to the side now. If they can take them on with clay pots, torches, and trumpets, then you've got enough, I assure you. But also you see that God saves in weakness. I mean, Gideon was of the weakest clan, he was the youngest in his family. I mean, you saw Gideon, we've seen him trip and fall all over the place. And we're going to see it even more in the next couple chapters. He uses the weakness. You see it in the New Testament. Jesus calls 12 apostles that really had no pedigree, no training. You see it in the widow's two mites. She really wasn't contributing anything, and yet we're still talking about her. God does great things through weakness. Gideon is to not just make us smile over the uniqueness of the victory, but it's to tell us of another deliverance that God will bring. The greatest deliverance in our minds. He has brought about a great deliverance through the weakness of his own son. Think about it. Jesus was born as a baby. That wasn't to make our Christmas sweet. It was to show him as weak and vulnerable. What is weaker than a baby? A baby can't even feed itself. And yet his ministry was marked by weakness. He was no pomp, no royalty, no recognition, no training. He's ministering among women, children, sick, sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes. When he even enters his own city of Jerusalem, he comes in on a donkey, not on a horse. You just see him in weakness. He didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself to become a servant, a weak servant. 
even humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, and he didn't carry his own cross. He didn't even carry his own cross. Someone had to carry that for him. It, it's a picture of weakness, and yet what God does in that picture of weakness is save us forever, to pour upon himself our sins and our shame and our guilt and to save us. Why would he do it? So that none of us would say, my hand has saved me. So that nobody would say, my hand has done this. I have helped him out. I pushed it across the finish line. Nobody will say that. We'll just say, to him be the glory. He did it all. God did it all. And that's what brings us to the table. You know, when you think about the table, it's God's way of reassuring us. You know, you may have come in here just broken. You've had a horrible week. You've yelled at your wife and kicked the dog. You may have slipped into sin again. You may have lost your cool. You may have lied, cheated, steal. You come in here. And God's reassuring you when you see the bread broken and the cup, you're going to be reminded that God is, has a covenant loyalty that he has made with those who have faith in Jesus Christ alone. You know, baptism is done one time. It's an entrance into faith. It's not repeated. But this communion, I thank God it's repeated. I, I need that constant sense of reassurance that he does love me, particularly when I sin, when I get angry. Or, or, or when I just feel a spiritual dryness or, or a trauma has come into your souls or your life or some health crises. That, as a leadership team, that blows us back. We, we, we feel that. We're like, oh, we need to be reassured. God, you're in this. You, you are in this even though it's ugly. And every month, we see the bread broken. We see the, the cup held up as a reminder that he did this for us to save us as a reassurance to us. You may be flagging in faith. You know I've said before, the table is not for the perfect, it's for the penitent. It's for those who are sorrowful over their sins, not because their sins have caused consequences that have been damaging, but we are sorrowful because they have injured and harmed a relationship with a Father in heaven who loves us. And we're sorry for that. And so we repent. But then we take the bread, being reminded, no, I still love you, just as any parent in here knows. When the, when the child, the son or daughter repents, you love them. Even though we sin, we don't stop being a son or a daughter. So let's take a minute now and just ask God to give us the grace to, to, to kind of pry, our, to, to pry open our souls and ask him for conviction if we need that or comfort if we need that. And then I'll pray for us in just a moment.